It's Wednesday, June 13th, and this is The Daily Dive. The historic meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has come and went. The two signed a joint statement that largely had diplomatic platitudes, but did say that North Korea would work toward complete denuclearization. However, it was the unscripted moments that stole the show, including a Hollywood-style trailer showcasing a possible future for North Korea. Axios reporter Elena Treen joins us for all the details of the summit. Continuing with summit news, the one major concession that came out of the meeting was that the U.S. would end joint military exercises with South Korea. The news took many by surprise, but the president called them expensive war games. We will speak to Brian Bender, defense editor and national security correspondent for Politico, for more on the impact of this decision. Finally, remember all those questions that Mark Zuckerberg never answered when he testified before the Senate? Well, he got back to everyone with a 454-page-long set of answers that sheds more light on all the data they collect on you. That includes the battery level of your phone and the movements of your mouse. Elizabeth Weiss, tech reporter for USA Today, joins us for more on all the ways Facebook is always tracking you. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Two men, two leaders, one destiny. A story about a special moment in time when a man is presented with one chance that may never be repeated. What will he choose? To show vision and leadership or not? Joining us now is Elena Treen, reporter for Axios. She's following all the details of the big summit meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. So let's start from the beginning. It was a historic handshake between the two leaders. And at that moment, North Korea met President Trump as an equal on the world stage. What we saw there was pretty remarkable and something that no other U.S. president has done, meeting a leader of the North Korean regime, or of the Kim regime, I should say. It was very historic, and one of the big things I think that is really important to point out is the way that the flags and the entire photo op and decorations that followed the summit, the way that they were represented. So the two flags, we saw the North Korean flag and the U.S. flag side by side. This is something that several experts who have followed North Korea say was a huge win to the Kim regime because it's basically showing that it puts both North Korea and the U.S. on equal standing. And that's something that the North Koreans were hoping to get out of this. And that's something they can take home to their people and show that they are on the same level playing field with the U.S. president. It greases the wheels a little bit. That's plays to President Trump. He wants to make some type of big deal further down the line, obviously. But you got to elevate them and kind of give them a little bit of what they want. So, I mean, it, it's a little give and take on that. But I did see a lot of experts saying that this is a huge win for North Korea. Exactly, especially given the rhetoric that we saw between the two leaders just a few months ago. To see them, the imagery of this, of them shaking hands, sitting side by side, cracking jokes ahead of the lunch that they had, it's a massive departure from those fire and fury days. And the president calling Kim Jong-un little rocket man on Twitter, a very noteworthy summit. Looking ahead, I think that the real tangible results won't really come until later on in future meetings down the road. And it was kind of an unexpected moment. They made an announcement saying we're going to have some type of signing, a document that they both signed at four main points of agreement. What was in that document? 
like you said, it was an unscheduled signing. I was actually up covering this in the middle of the, the night, and that was, came to a shock to a lot of reporters. But the document, when they signed it, it essentially said that North Korea was committing to complete denuclearization and also committing to establishing peace in the North Korean peninsula. And in return, President Trump vowed to provide unspecified security guarantees to North Korea. Uh, one thing that several people have been pointing out is that it didn't include the keyword verifiable. That It's unclear, you know, how will the U.S. be able to verify down the road that North Korean regime is actually getting rid of all of their nuclear material. Right. I think the big takeaway, a lot of people said it was very light on details, which it was, but it opens, it keeps that pathway of discussion open. Uh, and we know this would be a long process, the d- complete denuclearization of, of the area. At least most experts say that's the, the one thing we achieved. We're a little less closer to war and we still have this diplomatic channel open. Also in this whole hoopla was a lot of these unscripted moments that really stole the show, especially this video that President Trump showed Kim Jong-un. And it was a video showed to reporters as well. Right. We saw this video was played during the president's press conference following the summit. President Trump said he showed this to Kim Jong-un during their several meetings, and it essentially was showing that him possibilities of what the future could hold if they're able to normalize relations. And that includes, you know, becoming a much wealthier country. And some of what was seen on that video and also what Kim Jong-un saw while touring the sites of Singapore is how much of a modern city that these outside places are. It comes to a huge shock, I think, to someone like Kim Jong-un or several people who are hoping to see the footage of Singapore and from the summit. This is a completely different world than what they are living in. Yeah, it was very Hollywood heavy. Uh, he had even A narrator even says at one point, Destiny Pictures presents a story of opportunity. But it plays to things that uh, the president thinks Kim Jong-un wants for his country, more prosperity, and just to continue becoming a world player. The president also did a bunch of interviews after Fox News, uh, ABC, and there's some interesting quotes, especially in his interview with Fox News. He he spoke about the rhetoric that he used on uh, the Rocket Man stuff and the uh, Fire and Fury, and he said he hated to do it. He felt foolish, but he thought it was very necessary to do. I found that really interesting because a lot of what we see is just the president popping off on Twitter a lot. We're not really sure where the responses are coming from or what's motivated them. But he told Sean Hannity that, you know, he really, there was more to it. He felt foolish in saying this. He thinks the rhetoric, even though he he said he hated it sometimes, he felt he had to use it because he has no choice, that they have to take this harsh stance through words, not just be silent when the regime acts out or speaks out, but to hit back with the same amount of force, the same amount of harsh language. But it was very interesting to see that he thought it was foolish because we don't really see the president admitting to any sort of feelings like that. You know, with the signing of that document, having it ready, I mean, the president and Kim Jong-un met for only a little bit of time. And to hash out a whole agreement like this definitely had to be done beforehand. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and his counterparts, it kind of leads you to believe almost that these pot shots, these, the rhetoric that was going on while other negotiations were happening. So 
President Trump almost speaking to Kim Jong-un through Twitter because he knew that he'd hear about those things. And this negotiating from behind the table almost thin on details with the document they signed, but still keeps the diplomatic channel open. Elena Trine, reporter for Axios. She followed all of the details of the big summit meeting. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There are things that we negotiated after that document that are also very important. Uh, They're going to get rid of certain ballistic missile sites and various other things. I'm doing something that I've wanted to do from the beginning. We stopped playing those war games that cost us a fortune. Joining us now is Brian Bender, defense editor and national security correspondent for Politico. So let's focus on the big concession that came out of the Trump-Kim Jong-un summit and this was the pledge to end military exercise it as part of the ongoing talks. President Trump said he's going to stop what he called them war games. What was this all about? Yeah, I mean, I think that was a surprise to many, including the U.S. military, as well as the South Koreans, who are the ones, obviously, who conduct these very regular military training exercises, drills. I think what was most concerning to some of the folks we talked to was not just simply that he announced that the United States was going to halt these exercises, but the language he used to describe them, calling them even war games, also saying that they were provocative. That language was very similar to what the North Koreans have called these these exercises. And so I think it was sort of a combination. Number one, it came as a surprise that the president had agreed, at least in principle, to do this in the first place, but also that he was reading off some of the talking points of the North Koreans and even the Chinese, who have been very critical of these exercises, which are primarily defensive in nature. I, I've actually seen them up close in their... Yeah, explain those a little uh, bit. What, what goes on in these military exercises, and why are they so important? Well, I mean, there's about 28,000 or so American troops that are stationed in South Korea, and usually they go there, they're assigned there for a year or two, whether they're Army soldiers or... Air Force pilots. And so this is a very heavily fortified border between North and South Korea, including a demilitarized zone, basically separating South Korea and its capital of Seoul. And by some estimates, a million North Korean soldiers just a couple dozen miles north. And so it's a very tense place. It's kind of a tinderbox. And if the North Koreans were to invade, they could probably roll through pretty easily just by sheer numbers. And so there's constant drills going on to practice how would the United States and the South Koreans defend the South. And so these exercises are done regularly to to hone skills, to make sure that the U.S. units are working together with the South Korean units. But it's also because in the military, you get assigned to a place like South Korea for a year or two, and then you get sent off somewhere else. So to make sure that all the new troops that go in there are up to task is really the main focus of these exercises. Jim Mattis and the Pentagon said that they did hear about this, that President Trump spoke to him and consulted with him. But as you mentioned, troops there in South Korea and then the South Korean government were caught off guard by this. Right. The South Korean government put out a statement basically saying that it was not aware of this and it was seeking more clarity from the American government. And then U.S. Forces Korea, which is the command based in Seoul, basically said they're, they're not changing their plans. They, they're under no instructions to do anything differently. So clearly they haven't gotten word yet. At least they haven't gotten official word yet. You know, it's possible that they were given a heads up that this was coming. But this raises a bigger question, which is what does the president really want to get out of these talks? Presumably it's aimed at getting North Korea to agree to 
close up its nuclear weapons program and possibly its long-range missile program. But if the president is looking for something bigger, a peace treaty, normalization of relations, you know, an end, if you will, to the Korean War, which was only halted by an armistice. It was, it was never ended by a peace treaty, so it's effectively still going on. If that's the goal, it does raise these bigger questions about, well, why does the U.S. need 30,000 troops in South Korea? Um, if we're at peace with North Korea. And the president did say he would like to bring some troops home, if possible, if everything plays out right. Yeah, he was asked at his press conference after the summit about the future presence of American troops there, and he did say that I ran on a campaign platform of trying to bring our troops home, especially if they're in countries where, in his view, our allies are not paying their fair share. He would like to do that, but he did caution that with, that's going to come down the road, we're not at the point now where you would make that sort of decision. So how did all this news play out with national security experts? Well, most of the people we talked to were surprised and a little bit alarmed, and that was on sort of both sides, Democrats and Republicans or or those who support talking to North Korea and even some of those who don't. The common theme really was, or the common question was, number one, what does he mean? Because he wasn't very specific. But number two, what are we getting from this concession? If President Trump really did say to Kim Jong-un, yes, we promise to halt these provocative war games that you don't like. Did he get something in return? And it's not clear that he did. Yeah, the so only I thing I... That's the concern. The only thing I, I think I heard was that they're going to destroy another missile engine testing site as part of the agreement. But what other concessions were there? They're not, uh, not very many. You know, this is step one in what may be a very short path, depending on how it goes, or, you know, or a very long one. So I think even though some people are alarmed by this, this sort of first round, I, I do think that as things progress, as these additional talks proceed, that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to lead, I think people will calm down a little bit. I think the president won't be in the room for these negotiations that are coming up, presumably. It'll be more of the professionals, and I think there's some confidence that this will be a methodical approach, that it's not just going to throw things out there or shoot from the hip. Brian Bender, defense editor and national security correspondent for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have my team follow up with you on more information if that would be helpful. Senator, I have not heard that. Mr. Chairman, I, I will have my team follow up with you on what information we have. Senator, I don't know. Senator, I, I want to make sure I get this accurate, so it would probably be better to have my team follow up. So you afterwards. don't know? I'm not, I'm not sure the answer to that question. Really? Yes. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss. She covers computer security, technology for USA Today. So remember when Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress about the Cambridge Analytica scandal in April? There were a ton of questions that he was asked that he couldn't answer at the moment. He told members of Congress and the Senate that his team would get back to them when he could. Well, they finally did. The responses were 454 pages long. Elizabeth, what was in these responses? Oh my goodness, what wasn't in these responses? It, they're, they're two exceedingly long documents. Um, when you go through them, each senator either at the time had sent or in advance had sent questions to Zuckerberg or after the interview had sent follow-on questions to Zuckerberg, which went to the Facebook, I presume, legal team, and then they have now answered them. Most of it we knew. Some things were a little new, and in a lot of instances, the questions that the senators ask are not answered, though they're not answered at great length. Facebook talks a lot in the answers about the ways in which it collects data. One of the things that surprised me is things that you wouldn't even think that they track, oh, like exactly. they know 
how charged your phone or your computer is. I'm not. I, I can't. I was trying to ask people what would they do with that information, and I don't know what they would do with that information. <laughs> yeah, but I they think, know it. I think a lot of these things of how they track you. It's a question of one: how do they do it, and why do they need that information? So, like you said, they track your battery level, uh, available storage on your phone, the strength of the Wi-Fi signal. And one fascinating one is they also. You know, say you've got a bunch of browsers open or even a bunch of browser windows open on your computer, Facebook is able to tell whether the Facebook page is the one on top and therefore presumably the one you're looking at as opposed to one of the ones that's buried but happens to be open on your computer. One of the creepy ones is that it monitors your mouse movements. Yes. Uh, I think I've read that it, that's an effort to see if you're an actual person or a bot, but still... I don't, you know, why is it monitoring my mouse movements? It's just like a weird thing that you never think of, that that's how they're, they're following you. And they're aggregating such an insane amount of data about individual users. I mean, I think if there's one thing we've learned in the computer revolution, it's that the more data you have, you can find patterns that may not initially be obvious. So they keep all of this data, and then they start to see connections. And I'm sure that even if they haven't found connections yet, they'll find it later, and they might, you know, if your battery is starting to die, you go on the move because you're looking for some place to plug in, and maybe they can send you better ads for that. Some of the questions were very politically motivated. Senator Ted Cruz, he had over 200 questions, um, and many of them are very, you know, yes or no. Would Facebook consider statements such as all white people are inherently racist and all black people are inherently racist as hate speech. And then Facebook replied with, well, here's what our, our hate speech guidelines are. And then sometimes they didn't answer at all. I mean, several of Senator Cruz's questions, you know, and I, actually I think here's was the one that actually said, don't just say refer to the above answer. Answer each question. But Facebook didn't do that. They yeah, give me something more specific. Answer in question 33. <laughs> They did also respond to questions about regulations, and they yeah. said they would be willing to be regulated, but only if... They helped write the regulations. <laughs> we, want a, we want a big part in how we regulate ourselves, basically. Yes, they felt that they should be at the table helping to craft those regulations, and at that point they would be quite happy to take part in being... In, and this is regulations about their um, privacy practices. Well, we got a few answers, a little bit of clarification on what he didn't answer back in April. But where does this all leave the conversation? We all still continue to use Facebook. They still continue to collect our data. I mean, what's next for the conversation about our privacy and our data? You know, it's a, it's a hard one. I mean, I've been covering tech and the Internet for quite a few years, and it does seem that Americans don't care that much about their privacy. They, they might get all up in arms every once in a while over small things or, or even large things briefly, but it's very rare for Americans to say, no, I'm not willing to do that. I'm, whatever the positives of being on Facebook might be, I'm not, I'm not willing to give it up because I don't want, uh, I don't want my information shared. And I think what this process did with the hearings and now we've got these further questions it, it begins to clarify just how deeply and broadly companies like Facebook and, and others, I mean, Google, Apple, Amazon, they're all collecting information about us, how very deep and broad what they know about us and what they can guess about us is. Uh, 
whether that changes Americans' attitudes is another question. We only care once it blows up. Exactly. <laughs> Elizabeth Weiss, covering computer security and technology for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love all the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.